Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Um, so I think we need to come up with, like, a sexy, tough acronym for Rex Tillerson. Mm-hmm. Like, you have, like, like sex sexy Rexy. Or, like, you know, like you have sex stuff. I was thinking Rex Sec. Rex Sec. Rex Sec. Yeah, that sounds like, like a rucksack. Rucksack? Or maybe, like, Brexit. But it doesn't sound sexy. I'm sorry. No? No. It sounds like OPSEC. Like, it sounds like some kind of, like... OPSEC. Like yeah. A military like I think of it as, like, a military term. Rex Sex. Yeah. No, wait. Rex... Rex Sec. Rex... Sack. Are they just going to call him R in the building? Yeah. No, R, R is already somebody in the oh, building. Oh, R is somebody. Yeah. They will just call him S, right, in the building? Yes. S. S. Mr. S. Now God, I can't remember who R is. That's awful. I think R is pub- the Undersecretary for Public Diplomacy. <laughs> no, oh, not anymore. <laughs> uh, you mean the person that Roger Ailes has now um, being floated as the <laughs> occupant for? <laughs> right. Oh, okay. Roger Ailes will be R. Do Great. you think that Rex Sec will come in and say there's a new R in town? <laughs> I'm sure that's what he'll do. There's a new Rex second town. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Rex Sec edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Wall Street Journal. I would love to come up with an acronym for myself, but you know, I'll stick with Shane. We'll work on it. We'll work Shane, on it. It's a nice one syllable. It's a good monosyllabic, yeah. strong powerful name. Yes. John Wayne name. Yeah, although lots of girls are named Shane. Did you know that? It's actually oh. become an androgynous name, which I'm all for. Rock on. All right. All right, Lady Shanes. Yes, Welcome. Lady Shanes. Thank you for tuning in today. Uh, well, we have like no news to get to on the podcast. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, this week, the CIA concludes. Oh, first of all, I'm here with my friends Tamara Coffin-Wittis and Susan Hennessy. Jeez. Hi, Shane. Hi, Shane. No Benjamin get to topics. And no Ben Wittis. I feel bad that I forgot that Ben wasn't even here. You forgot? No, I mean I just I went right on with. There's him. this gaping in hole spirits. in our fellowship. Yeah, well, he's in Israel right now, rocking a good trip, right? Yeah, I will say there is a gaping hole in the dish doing uh, duty at my house. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. big time. Wow, put those kids to work. <laughs> hey, what are kids for? Exactly, exactly. manual Free labor. labor. That's literally it. <laughs> Not illegal in your own house. Uh, okay, the CIA concludes that Russian hackers tried to help Donald Trump get elected. Trump will nominate Exxon CEO Rex Tillerson as the next Secretary of State, and the Obama administration is confident that journalist Austin Tice, who has long been held hostage in Syria, is alive. And we will talk about what uh, the future holds for other Americans held abroad as the Obama administration comes to a close. Um, let's start with the obvious news of the week. Uh, on Friday night, it was reported in the Washington Post that the CIA, uh, about a week or so earlier, told senators that they had concluded that the hacks of the Democratic National Committee uh, and Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman were not just designed to interfere with the U.S. election, but were in fact an attempt to help boost Donald Trump's chances of winning the election and hurt Hillary Clinton's campaign. Something that obviously a lot of people had speculated might be the case, uh, but we had not seen any kind of official uh, expression of that before. 
Um, the counter to this from the Trump campaign, Susan, was fairly interesting. Nuh-uh. Nuh-uh. No, they didn't. No, you didn't. Um, yeah, it was sort of, it was incredible. I mean, Donald Trump essentially just said, I don't believe them. Um, and actually went sort of further. His, his transition team um, issued a statement saying, these are the same people that thought that there were weapons of mass destruction, Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. I mean, he really sort of um, uh, lashed out rather strongly at the CIA and then um, uh, spent the following uh, days uh, doubling down on that. Um, so it's a, it's a relatively extraordinary response. It raises some real questions about... Um, uh, what his relationship with the intelligence community will look like going forward. A little um, awkward to start. Right. A number of his high-profile surrogates have also started to um, circulate the theory um, that this is, quote, a false flag operation. Right. John Bolton uh, put that out there. Right. Uh, Possible Deputy Secretary of State. Right. Carter Page apparently has also been circulating this uh, talking point oh, he's uh, back. in Moscow. He's oh, back. Good. He's back, guys. Oh, good. That's um, nice. Uh, right to sort of this, um, maybe it was actually China. Maybe it was once again a guy on a bed. He brought that up. Uh, he didn't mention 400 pounds, so he's past fat shaming. Um, uh, but I think it, it is sort of important to understand um, the body of evidence that exists um, uh, that might be lost on some of the broader public unless they've been following the story. Um, I would highly recommend the excellent uh, article in Esquire by one Thomas Ridd mm-hmm. um, uh, chronicling uh, the uh, the various evidence. Sort of the we- definitive capstone piece mm-hmm. i think actually yeah, it, it's kind of amazing actually that they, that trump and those around him can cast as much doubt as they can on something that has been so thoroughly uh reported and nay chronicled by thomas ridd and i i wish that we just had some way of getting thomas ridd awesome. here only on the we podcast. could snap our fingers hold on wait no oh. <gasps> Ladies and gentlemen, we happen to have right here in the Jungle Studio, one Thomas Ridd. Welcome, uh, Thomas. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. Hi, welcome. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> we're glad you're here. We're very glad, we're you're, glad here. you're here. He's clearly surprised you. Very, yes, <laughs> appeared out of thin air. We pulled you out of whatever here. you were doing, and now you've materialized <laughs> here in the here. Jungle Studio. Uh, Thomas, seriously, thanks for being here. Um, you did write, I think, what many people regard as one of the definitive, if probably the definitive article, putting together everything that we know about <clears throat> the hackers, sometimes known as Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear, or sometimes known as the Dukes. Um, start with just maybe your reaction both to, I'd love to know what you think about the CIA's reported assessment that this was done to help Trump, but also, you know, Trump pushing back on this and saying, as he has in the past, there's just simply no evidence that this was the Russians, you know, despite the fact that all intelligence agencies have said that, that it was. Well, you know, I mean, obviously, I feel a bit awkward if people say it's the definitive piece for a number of reasons. But the most important one being that so many other people have spoken about this, researched this, uh, found public evidence, not just me. All I did is collect it in one place and, and you know, tell it in a way that uh, a broader audience can understand. So, but let's, you know, if... If there's a 400-pound hacker uh, that you're trying to identify, he is sitting right here in front of us, and you can touch it. And the situation is that some people think, well, you know, they still ask, where's the evidence? We have 400 pounds of evidence sitting right in front of us, so to speak. We just need to look at it and analyze it. So we have a lot of mistakes that they made in haste. Um, So just a quick backup, uh, the... uh, 
DNC hack. There were two different DNC hacks were discovered in, in late 15, uh, and the second breach was discovered in uh, probably March uh, this year. And then it was made public by the DNC and CrowdStrike on the 14th of June. And then I'm, I'm, the, the deadline here is really important because, one, several people, intelligence uh, community, FBI, as well as CrowdStrike, watched what was going on inside the networks in real time. So basically they caught the hacker in the act, to use a Trumpian uh, phrase of term, phrase. That's one thing. And the other thing is when the APT-28 uh, fancy bear or GRU were discovered, they very quickly reacted in the span of something like 24 hours, very hastily, accelerating their already existing plan to leak. And because they acted so quickly, they made a number of mistakes that were revealing in hindsight. And obviously, it's more revealing if you look at the mistakes that, that were made under time pressure uh, than other mistakes that were made deliberately later to false flag. So you're sort of indicating, I think this is an important point. Um, all right, so there's the initial assessment that comes out um, from CrowdStrike and the DNC saying it's the Russians. Um, actually, uh, I think a lot of people did have questions about whether or not it was really fair to say uh, it was Russia. Apparently, these were two groups that were not acting in concert. Um, and then actually, the leaked documents are what provide additional evidence. Yeah. You know, it's you can't, we can't overstate how much the threat intelligence community, both in government as well as in industry, already know about these two actors. I mean, literally in September this year, we had the 20th anniversary of discovering one of these actors inside a U.S. network. And that's 20, 20 years, years, two decades. And it took them back in 1996, it took them a while to discover the scale of the, op of the operation. But I think the first time was in the summer of 1998 when the U.S. government, especially the FBI, with help from industry already then, uh, attributed this to Russia and later confirmed the uh, evidence in, a, in, in 1999. So this is not a new phenomenon. The, the U.S. government has been catching Hushin, Russian hackers literally for two decades now. So I think what's interesting about this latest pushback from Trump is not only – the pushback on the fact of Russian of attribution of this attack to Russia, but the the subsequent wave of um, complaints that the CIA's attribution of motive, in other words, that the Russians did this to affect the election, to hurt Hillary Clinton by implication, to support Donald Trump, um, that that's also getting a lot of pushback. And today there was. You know, news that the ODNI, the uh, Director of National Intelligence Office, disagreed with the CIA's ascription of motive to the attack. So what are we to make of this debate? So, look, from from sort of my perspective, um, uh, there there is always uh, – it's not uncommon for there to be um, some marginal disputes um, among the various intelligence agencies. And so um, if we want to look at uh, where is sort of the core area of agreement, um, it's that statement that ODNI and DHS put out. Um, those statements are released through an interagency process. Um, everybody signs off on them. Um, any intelligence agency that does not sign off um, can actually do a formal non-concur, right? They say we aren't we don't want to be a part of this we don't um, we don't sign off on this 
And so those um, uh, that statement, which was so remarkably detailed and so sort of forward-leaning in terms of attributing directly to the Russian government, um, it really does stop short of uh, ascribing that specific motive. Um, so I think that it's fair to say the only debate here, the only meaningful debate, is whether or not the existing body of evidence is sufficient to say with any level of confidence that the motive here was to elect Donald Trump as opposed to undermine the sort of the election generally, uh, potentially harm Hillary Clinton, right? I mean, whenever we think about the shades of nuance and the difference between a motivation of wanting to hurt Hillary Clinton and help Donald Trump, right? These are these are very, very minor differences. Yeah. Um, so to the extent that there's a difference of opinion between apparently sort of CIA, NSA, um, and uh, um, uh, the FBI, and now apparently ODNI, uh, we're talking about sort of very minor questions of how much weight they give particular pieces of evidence. I think Trump is now attempting to drive a truck through that by saying, hey, look, there's no, they don't even agree. Well, they agree on all of the sort right. of all of the pertinent facts. Right. And I think what's interesting about that, you think you're totally right. I mean, is the baseline... This was done to interfere with the elections, as to use the words that were in that statement. There's agreement on that, and that can cover all manner of interference, whether it's done for one party or another, one candidate or another, et cetera. I think that the, the, the distinction, I think you're right, that it's getting then to helping one candidate is not that much farther in terms of the distinction. But for the political purposes of the president-elect coming in and believing that the intelligence community he's about to direct views him as – potentially a threat. I don't know if we go so far as to say illegitimately elected, obviously not, because there's no evidence that they actually hacked the votes, but, you know, views him with at the very least some trepidation, which they probably did before. It's fairly clear to say that. And there were people even saying that, in fact, Mike Hayden writing openly saying he was an unwitting agent of the Russian government. But I wonder what you guys think about now. How does, like, what does it look like when an intelligence community now kind of welcomes in is the wrong word, but has a president elect that as a president that clearly believes they were out to, you know, somehow sandbag him, right? Well, I don't know if it's that so much. I mean, first of all, I don't know that you need sort of direct evidence of explicit intent in order to conclude from the set of facts that that the nature of the intervention indicates it was intended for a certain purpose. And I think Thomas, you lay this out very well in your piece that the the sequence of what they released and how they released it was clearly directed against the Democratic side in the race. And so you can infer intent, I think, pretty reasonably from that. But the second thing is, you know, with regard to your broader question, Shane, which I think is a good one, we have Trump who has denigrated this specific piece of analysis and cast doubt on the veracity of the intelligence community in general. He's said explicitly that he doesn't need daily intelligence briefings and they just tell him the same things over and over again and it's not that useful. Um, and we've seen that throughout his campaign and since being elected, what he's interested in is creating his own frame for issues and his own set of facts that he puts forward, regardless of what other facts might be out there and relevant to the issue. And so I think his rejection of the intelligence community and of intelligence information is just part of a broader strategy to make sure he's the guy who controls the narrative, 100% control. Mm. I also, I think I agree. As you say, we can infer 
intent from some of their behavior. And for instance, uh, as the CIA statement implies or a story implies, they probably, uh, I would assume that somebody knows or has seen that, they, that the Russian operators breached the RNC, exfiltrated files from the RNC, the Republican uh, National Committee, but did not make these files public. And that would confirm what you already said, that there was an intent to help only one side. Um, but I think I would go even even further, because I think what we see here is this operation is not over. The fact that we're having this conversation right now, the fact that you have this extraordinary friction right now between the intelligence community and the president-elect, between the Democrats and the Republicans, a highly politicized environment here, this is a direct success of this operation. This is not disconnected from the operation. This is the operation itself. And I would go even further than that. Just listen to what uh, the president-elect uh, tweeted and said um, from you know, a Russian or a Chinese perspective. What he's saying, in, you know, translated into even plainer English, is, I'm not seeing you. Go ahead. Hack us. Hack our allies. Go ahead. Hack Germany. We will, con we will stop uh, calling you out. I think this is one of the reasons why um, we uh, this is such a significant story and one that's not going away. So we have um, uh, sort of the intelligence community in Germany um, as well as uh, the intelligence community in uh, in the UK now reporting that they are seeing um, substantial activity, hacking activity directed against their upcoming elections. Of course, um, the German election having um, uh, sort of relatively substantial implications for kind of the future of the European project in general. Um, the liberal international order. The free world. For example. Um, you know, and, and I think it wouldn't be sort of, um, I don't think it would be ridiculous to um, predict that maybe uh, the next candidate who gets a little boost might be, I don't know, Marine Le Pen in France. Um, sort of uh, their, do we even call it populist? Are we allowed to say? Yeah, right wing. Right wing. Yeah, it's generally right called a right wing. Nativist. Yeah. Nativist, sure, that's I a think. nice word for it. Um, <laughs> Uh, right, so these um, uh, the way we respond to this um, is going to be incredibly significant. Um, just uh, a few hours ago, the New York Times um, uh, published a very long sort of um, deep dive, some of which uh, rehashes your article, Thomas, um, that sort of is the story about what happened uh, from kind of the DNC and the White House's perspective, right? So um, uh, sort of what the story looks like, how the DNC sort of fumbled the response, uh, how the White House kind of fumbled the response. Um, Very slow response, actually, it seems like. Yeah, although one wonders whether the White House reticence was fumbling. I mean, in retrospect, maybe you can say it was an, uh, a wrong judgment, but it seemed pretty deliberate reticence that they wanted caution, to avoid yeah. politicization of exactly the kind that Thomas uh, is pointing out. And I actually, I mean, Thomas, I think that's an important point that we're not done with this and the effects of it are still being felt and they are likely to do more in order to prolong those effects or exacerbate them. To me, what's significant is that into that breach has stepped a bipartisan group of senators now, including the majority and minority leader of the Senate and relevant committee chairman and ranking members, saying that they are going to work together on a, a collective investigation of Russian hacking in the campaign, of the DNC hack in particular, of what the purpose of it was, but also of the broader uh, problem of uh, – of nation-sponsored 
cyber hacking and and what it means for our national security. And it seems to me that it's that kind of uh, of action, it's that kind of initiative that can help to mitigate the effect uh, of of what the Russians have done. If indeed their primary goal was to was to create that partisan divide. Yeah. Okay. Can I just come in with a sort of a critical observation? Because I think it's, it's really important to point that out. The story that you mentioned, Susan, in the New York Times um, that just came out has some extraordinary detail in it. Among, it among, among that is the way the FBI, if you like, authenticated itself to, to the DNC when they warned, so they warned the DNC, hey, you have a problem. But they didn't want to email them, obviously, because their network was compromised. So they called them. It's really hard on the fo- hard on the phone to identify yourself as a legitimate FBI agent. So apparently, if this account is correct, and I, we don't know yet, we, the FBI hasn't said anything yet. I, I mean, what, we, what I'm what I'm seeing is highly uh, unprofessional behavior. If this is a high profile case, the intelligence community in this country should have been aware and probably was aware that Russians have a long history of information operations, even using hacked material in 2015 in Saudi Arabia already. So I'm really surprised that they were not on top of this earlier in this entire affair. And it only came in with this major statement in, you know, October, one month before the election. Right. So I I do agree. I mean, so the FBI was clearly um, slow on the draw here. Um, One thing that They were busy investigating the server. Right. They had other things to do. Um, One thing, I mean, sort of in um, in, uh, fairness to the FBI, um, you know, the the ability of the FBI to sort of make a victim notification is um, and sort of uh, uh, warn people is relatively limited, right? So if it's not a government system, if it's a private actor, sort of um, uh, typically the most you can do is kind of do a warning. Um, uh, I agree. Unbelievable that they wouldn't walk half a mile or a mile, you know, to the DNC to do the warning in person to actually, you know, show them a badge. Um, but it, I, I read that story of sort of you know repeated and increasingly frantic phone calls with this kind of junior uh, DNC staffer who's like not taking, you know, not taking it seriously. I think there's a pretty egregious breaches kind of on both sides yeah, there. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. Um, okay, let's move on to our next segment. Uh, after a, a long. <clears throat> Long, long drama. It was so entertaining. You in suspense. Almost I, a full season. I was on the edge of my seat for weeks. The final rose for Secretary of State goes to Rex Tillerson. Rex Tillerson, will you be my Secretary of State? <laughs> what a show. What a show. So good. I can't wait for season two. <laughs> um, Exxon CEO Rex Tillerson, obviously. Rex Sec. I'm telling you, it's going to catch on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Keep um, working on that, Shane. Keep working on it. X-T, maybe? Yeah, Rex T, T-Rex. There S-Rex. you go. That's good. Now we're getting somewhere. Rex Thomas, T- I knew there was a reason we brought you here. What did you say, Rex T? Well, T-Rex. T-Rex. Rex T. Rex yeah. T, I like it. All right. Um, so, not exactly. I mean, look, I mean, some of his supporters are saying if you wanted to pick a CEO that had, you know, global leadership acumen in spades, you probably would pick someone who runs a company that as Fried Zakaria said, is almost like a country. It's so large and has so many operations in the world. Um, <clears throat> we don't traditionally go to necessarily CEOs. Um, necessarily do we always go to ones that uh, are friends with Vladimir Putin. Uh, and certainly in the current environment, that raises some eyebrows. But Tamara, um, we magically have a former senior State Department <laughs> official here in our midst. Who did not come from the private from sector. From the private sector. Um Kind of break this down for us a bit. I mean, A, your reaction, but B, sort of how would should we initially be thinking of 
uh, Rex Tillerson in uh, this role of the most prominent cabinet position in the government? So I think that initial reactions to the Tillerson appointment have centered around two things. One, quite naturally, is his relationship with Putin, which apparently is one of mutual admiration. Um, and certainly Exxon has some major business uh, in in Russia at the moment. And, uh, and certainly it is true that Exxon has uh, assiduously opposed American sanctions on Russia and that Tillerson himself has lobbied the government to lift those sanctions. Um, the other dimension is just that he's coming out of the energy sector and therefore he, you know, is assumed to uh, embrace a set of interests that are quite different from those of the current administration. Of course, that's what happens with elections and we're seeing that with a number of these personnel appointments. But I think one of the things that's interesting and maybe worth a little bit of debate is the question of having a CEO of a multinational corporation uh, nominated to a job like this. There are a lot of people who are saying this isn't relevant experience um, or even that, you know, it's uh, it's completely unqualified um, and that this isn't the kind of person you should have. And, and my colleague Suzanne Maloney actually has a piece in the Wall Street Journal today pushing back on precisely that point. Suzanne, full disclosure, did work for ExxonMobil for a couple of years a number of years ago, um, and she did not work directly for Tillerson. But she makes the point that a multinational corporation, one that does business in a wide variety of environments, and especially one like ExxonMobil, that like every other oil company, um, goes into environments that are fraught with political risk, that are often fraught with conflict, because a lot of natural resource-rich states are um, difficult political environments and difficult security environments, that somebody who's a CEO of a company like that uh, actually does have a lot of experience dealing with politics and diplomacy, dealing with the governments who often control the energy sector in their countries. Um, and so it it actually can be quite relevant experience and certainly isn't worth dismissing out of hand. Now, you know, all that said, I think it's it's reasonable to point out that an oil company's interests in engaging in that kind of diplomacy are quite different from the interests of the United States of America. Uh, and But I think that that allows you to focus in when it comes to confirmation hearings on how this guy understands American interests and what he's willing to say about a set of traditional American foreign policy interests that relate to peaceful conflict resolution, human rights, um, you know, and and uh, free markets and transparency and, and anti-corruption and things like that. And so um, I wouldn't say that I am reassured by Suzanne's argument that the CEO of ExxonMobil has relevant experience to be Secretary of State, but I do think it's worth considering. So um, uh, I think that, that it's sort of uh, it's unreasonable to think um, uh, Tillerson is sort of all bad or all good, right? Um, of course, like anyone else, um, he's going to bring uh, some strengths and weaknesses. Um, so I think sort of it's a little bit of a straw man of, um, you know, uh, does he have any pertinent experience whatsoever or, or not? Well, I don't know that anyone was really making that case. Um, uh, certainly he's operated in, um, in some difficult environments. Um, uh, that's relevant experience. I, I would think that we would also be concerned 
concerned or, or focused on um, not just the fact that somebody operated in an environment, but actually what they did there. Um, and so one of the things that I think is most telling um, isn't just the, sort of this um, uh, purported friendship with Vladimir Putin, which um, for reasons that I want to discuss in a moment um, are significant, um, but also looking at sort of his evolution as he operates in, for example, Russia. Um, so uh, Julia Yaffe has, uh, has reported this um, uh, a fairly detailed story about sort of um, Tillerson's, let's say, evolution um, from somebody who really um, uh, went from um, being quite strident about the importance of the rule of law in Russia and that Russia needed to sort of um, uh, establish itself as a rule of law country to uh, presumably to allow companies to operate. Um, and then as um, sort of over the six years in which, um, uh, from the outside perspective, um, Russia becomes uh, less and less committed to the rule of law, um, uh, Tillerson becomes um, friendlier and friendlier and friendlier, sort of culminating in um, this uh, order of friendship, um, uh, sort of official designation from Vladimir Putin. I would um, note, too, that that's a pretty common evolution for CEOs of large corporations with operations abroad. They often start out talking to dictators about the necessity of rule of law and transparency and then evolve to taking advantage of the business opportunities before them. Right, but Which considering- Trump might see as an asset. That's a negotiating <laughs> posi- right. uh, yeah. strategy, right? And whenever we're evaluating him in the context of being Donald Trump's Secretary of State, and we already know that Donald Trump has these sort of mercantilist impulses, um, I'm not reassured by sort of um, Rex Tillerson. I, I have no, um, I have no doubt he might be effective in operating in that space. I, I do think, though, there's significant questions about effective to what ends. Um, I'm not convinced that the ends he's going to set himself to, um, uh, nor the ends that Donald Trump is going to set himself to, are uh, are uh, consonant with either um, America's interests, uh, nor some of our sort of bedrock principles, commitments to democracy, human rights, etc. Maybe you can just bring in a, a sort of a, an unusual angle to this uh, discussion. So if you look at um, T-Rex from a Russian perspective, um, <laughs> in a way he presents a problem for them in his new role because it's a bit like the great Satan in Iran. The ideology that Putin has erected is based on anti-Americanism to a significant degree, to, uh, on anti-Western uh, ideology, sentiment. So if you suddenly... If, if the great Satan is suddenly a good friend of yours, you know, you, you have, you run into ideological problems of justification, if you like. So in a way, I think they must be quite un, a bit concerned about how to deal with this in the future because they haven't been there before. So I think this is a really important point um, and that uh, the selection of Tillerson uh, sends a very specific message to Russia. And it's one that I think the confirmation hearings should focus on. Um, so uh, sort of going back to our first segment, um, uh, most reasonable rational people can, uh, you know, agree that um, uh, the Russians uh, attempted to interfere in our elections for some purpose. Um, uh, obviously, they are now pivoting uh, to European elections. Um, uh, there is a need for a deterrent response. Um, if we do not um, uh, counter this behavior, um, uh, explain to them that this is really not something they want to do, um, we're likely to see this continue and actually escalate, right? Just like we've seen sort of the cycle of escalation from intrusions and espionage up to doxing and sort of more active measures. Um, thinking about the selection of Rex Tillerson in that context, right? Um, so sort of uh, 
uh, Russia has um, uh, purportedly attempt to, uh, attempted to help uh, Donald Trump get elected. Donald Trump gets elected. Um, and then the reward is, um, uh, is a secretary of state who has, um, uh, you know, unabashedly pro-Russia sentiments. Um, I agree that um, this might be sort of an uncomfortable messaging position for Vladimir Putin. That said, considering the state of the Russian economy, um, uh, and uh, Tillerson's um, commitments to wanting to uh, lift sanctions on Russia, um, saying they are, quote, ineffective despite all evidence to the contrary, um, the level of how big of a win this would be, the level of success that this operation would be to the Russians would be so uh, extraordinary that it's hard to imagine why they wouldn't try this again, even if they only succeeded on this level one out of a hundred or a thousand times, certainly it would be worth it. And okay, so but I feel like you and Thomas are posing very opposite potential pathways from the same event. So, you know, he could be Nixon goes to China. He could be the former Russophile uh, business doer with Putin who has to, you know, who comes out tough against the Russians. Uh, or he could be Russia's best friend. And we don't know the answer to that yet. And one of the ways that the expectations are going to be set for him, the constraints are going to be set for him, and the message is going to be sent to Russia is through his confirmation process and through the context in which he takes office, which will include this Senate investigation and whatever else comes out about Russian hacking between now and, you know, and February, presumably, by the time he gets up for hearings and so on. So I think that I agree with all of your reasons for potential concerns, Susan. I just don't think that we can necessarily yeah. make a conclusion yet about what this is going to mean. There's one other issue I wanted to raise about Tillerson, though, because we can and should and will talk a lot about his uh, attitudes toward Russia and toward sanctions on Russia. But there's also his attitude toward sanctions more broadly and other sanctioned states like Iran, where ExxonMobil also you know, once did business, would love to do business um, at where sanctions have been a major tool. But more broadly, over the Bush administration and more so the Obama administration, sanctions have become such a big part of the American policy toolbox to leverage against unfriendly states. And if this guy, you know, has a prejudice against sanctions based on his own experience, that is going to be a challenge. Okay, um, let's move on to our final segment. Uh Possibly some good news here <laughs> to end, uh, end on uh, this week. Uh, it was reported this week that American officials believe that Austin Tice, who was a journalist abducted in Syria four years ago, uh, is still alive. Uh, John Cornyn, U.S. Senator, came out last week and talked about this. The president's special envoy for hostage affairs has said the government has, quote, high confidence that Tice remains alive. Um, Austin is 35. He has been <clears throat> obviously the subject of a lot of foreign policy attention, a lot of uh, attention from journalists as well. I um, mean, it's kind of become one of the, uh, he, he's not the only American left abroad. In fact, there is uh, uh, at least, uh, well, at least two Americans that we know of, one of whom has not been identified, uh, as well as a woman with her family who's being held in Afghanistan. But Austin has kind of become this sort of lingering symbol, uh, sort of in the way maybe Jason Rezaian was a little bit when he was in Iran as this very kind of visible, potent symbol because he's a journalist of, of, the uh, the crisis of uh, American hostages held abroad. Um, 
where what how do we start to think of a like what this means at the end of the Obama administration? Do they see this as work undone that not all of these people have been brought back? And I'm curious to know from my perspective, <clears throat> I assume that the Trump administration will absolutely, you know, make an effort to get these people back and you might even imagine seeing Donald Trump possibly talking about it. I mean, he was outraged by the the videos of ISIS beheading journalists and, and referred to this frequently for his calls to get tougher on ISIS. Um, but obviously there is there are diplomatic channels and strategies in play here that are bringing trying to bring these people back. It's not so much always a military effort. Um, but I'm kind of curious what you guys think of in, in terms of what, what happens now for these Americans, any chance they might even come back in a sort of, you know, final moment before uh, the curtain closes on the Obama administration? So I would be surprised if we saw sort of a last minute operation, um, especially considering sort of the state on the ground in Syria at the moment. Um, although I suppose anything is possible. I'm sure um, if the Obama administration saw an opening, um, they would uh, unequivocally take it. Um, uh, you know, and and, and uh, certainly Senator Cornyn um, uh, deserves uh, a lot of credit for really um, uh, keeping this story in the news. Um, uh, Austin Tice is from Texas, and so one is one of Cornyn's constituents, and um, uh, and he really really has um, uh, been quite dogged in sort of in pursuing this story. Um, uh, you know, the museum has sort of this this huge banner of Tice kind of up on the wall as sort of this this enduring reminder. Um, I do think it's sort of worth thinking about um, uh, the fate of people like Tice um, uh, in the context of sort of a Trump administration. Um, so uh, hostage rescue and hostage negotiation is um, probably one of the most delicate diplomatic and operational dances that we do. Um, uh, it's uh, an incredibly fraught, delicate situation in which you, um, you know, you need to apply sufficient pressure, but you also, they have the person, they're sort of at your mercy, and, and these very careful back channels and um, uh, sort of uh, very small errors can lead to really significant consequences. Um, and uh, it's also an area in which intelligence actually plays a really, really high, um, uh, is really really, really important. So um, uh, Senator Cornyn on the floor um, noted that there is high confidence um, uh, that Austin Tice is still alive. Which is a very telling term. I mean, it's, it's, it's an that's essentially saying it's an intelligence term. term. It's, <clears throat> we're, we're, we're almost certain. Yeah. Right. It's as close as you get. Exactly. One, great news that they're, that they're almost certain he's still alive. But two, using the term high confidence, um, that's a relatively strong sign that that's an intelligence. The, the intelligence community has, right. included, has concluded that they believe uh, uh, Tice is alive. So this is an area in which, um, as we start to think about sort of the importance of intelligence and also sort of um, the importance in not everything being kind of brute force uh, uh, diplomacy and sort of the screw China, screw you guys, let's just tweet our way out of this. Um, uh, these are really delicate situations. Um, uh, and so um, whether or not this is an area in which Trump will um, really take a step back, uh, recognize that this is an area in which expertise is incredibly important. Um, uh, these tend to be the operations in which we um, are most forward-leaning and putting our military members kind of at immediate risk. Um, uh, so whether or not he really will defer here, um, because it's hard to imagine sort of a, a more um, dramatic crystallization of uh, the importance of the system that Trump really uh, has been inclined to reject thus far. And the expertise that he has so devalued. Susan, I agree with everything you just said. I, I would just add that it's also, this is also a policy area where 
um, the risks, the policy risks and the political risks for a president in making the decisions about how to pursue freedom for hostages, whether you, you do it using a military strike, whether you risk killing the hostage, um, whether you put special forces in harm's way, whether you do a somewhat uh, unsavory deal with a nasty government or work through a third party, a third government um, that might not be your best friend uh, to help free these people. These, these are political risks that a president has to be willing to take on in order to bring American citizens back home. And it's hard to imagine someone with the personality of President-elect Trump uh, taking on those personal political risks to do that. Uh, so, I, you know, to me, that does not bode well. Um, I think also it's been a really fraught experience for the Obama administration. We've seen them really struggle with it quite publicly at times, come in for tremendous criticism from hostages' families, uh, and as a result, revamp their policy, make it more transparent, share more information with families. And, you know, is that going to continue? Can I offer just like, <clears throat> I'm going to completely imagine a counter hypothetical, like, and I'm going to to put Trump on the couch a little bit here and also think about sort of what needs to get done and maybe what's not being done with hostage policy. <clears throat> Imagine Donald Trump comes in, brings the families to the White House, has a private meeting with them, says, I think you were treated terribly by the previous administration. No one talked to you about your beautiful children. I will never do that to you. I will make this my mission to get them back. And then realizes that <clears throat> there is a whole apparatus that's been set up, partly through the FBI, partly through the State Department, that is trying to engage in essentially deal-making behind the scenes. And the objective is to get these people home. He knows that the reward is someone flying home on a plane. He might even go there to meet them. And possibly looks at these people in the State Department especially who are working on this and says, I get it. This is about negotiations. This is about strategy. This is about trading, deal making, and really decides to get in there so, and try okay, to do that's, that. That's the best possible. Well, I mean, interpretation. Yeah, I, I, maybe I'm giving too much credit, but like there is like this is brokering to some extent, and to the extent that you know he's broken so many sort of mores and areas of foreign policy. Why wouldn't he possibly break the quote unquote we don't negotiate with terrorists quote unquote right. we right. don't, we pay, don't ransoms. pay ransoms when well, we know we yeah. sorta kind of do in a lot of instances right so I do think um uh, I think it's totally possible that sort of um his uh, his instinct will be sort of a, a cowboy get in there you know no man left behind kind of um uh, so I can see him one um ordering aggressive military operations um which are not unconsequential um and and Probably won't work. Right. Uh, are <laughs> unlikely to work. I mean, if he has a, a major failure there. For which example. Jim Mattis would probably tell him, by the way. Yeah. Right. And so this and depends so on Michael the extent Flint. to which well, he decides, uh, the extent to which he decides to defer to expertise. So I can see him looking at that apparatus, being really committed to wanting to see people come home and saying, you people, you don't get it done. I'm going to get it done. Now, there could be some positive shifts in hostage policy, right? So um, as the Europeans do, the United States could start to acknowledge that, uh, yeah, we actually do negotiate with terrorists. We do pay. Uh, ransoms, um, uh, lifting some of the laws that um, have, have put families in very difficult situations because, of course, it is actually illegal to pay uh, uh, ransoms, even though um, the, the government has sort of turned a blind eye to that activity. Um, you know, so, so maybe there'll be some positive reforms, um, but the idea that, that whether he either um, totally ignores this and, and doesn't want to get it sort of entrapped in the political uh, uh, you know, mess that, that these situations can, can cause, or if he comes in kind of 
kick the door down, guns blazing, um, uh, I fear that there could be negative consequences. This is going to be a fascinating one to watch. Well, also, um, also, oh, go ahead, j- 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 yeah, go ahead. Sorry, just quick observation. I think uh, given the breach of trust between the uh, transition team, president-elect, and the intelligence community, I wonder what the uh, likelihood is that, I mean, there will be a great reluctance to share information with the president that if he leaks that information, mm-hmm. and he's leaked his own you know, announcements again and again uh, ahead of time, that could ha- have life and death consequences. Wow. Yeah, right. there's a question of, I mean, the... the, the it's an interesting observation, Thomas, because I mean, this, this, the 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 way that the administration, and I've been in this position too of of knowing the name of an American hostage that we did not report, but the extent to which forces in the administration kind of marshaled to plead with us, do not publish this for the following reasons. You wonder if maybe they would say, maybe don't give him a name, maybe don't tell him where the hostage is. Look at at some point, and maybe the president doesn't need any president doesn't need to know that specific information. Right. So I can certainly um, see the intelligence community being um, more conservative in terms of how much information needs to kind of leave the building. Um, but at the end of the day, the notion that the IC um, uh, would or should um, actively uh, prevent uh, the president of the United States from having access to intelligence information—that's a really, really dangerous path to start walking down. Um, uh, it's one I think there will be a lot of resistance to in the IC. Um, I do think sort of the prevailing view is the only thing worse than Donald Trump with classified information is an intelligence community that substitutes its independent judgment for the democratic judgment, you know, influenced or otherwise, um, of the American people. That that's that really has some, um, some rather troubling um, uh, end results. Yeah. Bigly. 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 Uh, okay, let's move on to object lessons. Uh, I'll go first. Uh, I'll do two objects. Actually, first, let me just flag uh, our guest Thomas Ridd's book, Rise of the Machines, A Cybernetic History, which you should definitely go check out. Oh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I also want to flag another book that uh, we got multiple copies of this in the Bureau this week, Warriors and Citizens by one, edited at least by one, Jim Mattis. You may have heard of him. He's going to be Secretary of Defense. Uh, and Corey Shockey, who we know and love, friend love of the podcast. Love Corey. Friend of yeah. the podcast, friend of all. Mad Dog Mattis, it's nice you edited a book, but we're really excited that Corey has edited a book. Totally. Uh, but this is uh, a, a – it's edited by the two of them, uh, subtitle American Views of Our Military. Uh, a group of contributors offer these different perspectives on whether or not the different experiences of military in the broader society amounts to a gap essentially, in the American public. I'm reasoning here from the Amazon jacket cover. And losing um, I America. believe that one of those contributors is our own Benjamin Whittaker. He might be in the book. I might be log rolling for Ben in his absence. <laughs> wow. He's off gallivanting around the Levant, <laughs> taking helicopter rides. Uh, uh, I think it'll be very interesting to – obviously, this book was in the works before Jim Mattis <laughs> realized that he was going to be the Secretary of Defense, or at least the nominee. Um, but uh, it's not every day that a, a new book lands by uh, such a prominent cabinet nominee but uh, people I think will probably be start turning to this and other things that Mattis has written and 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 talked about um, particularly his views I think on uh, what the proper role of generals is what the proper role of the military is which he has said our job is not to make policy it is to implement policy now he's going to be a policy maker it'll be interesting to see I think whether Donald Trump wants uh, more generals, as he's been calling them, his generals. He's appointed a lot of retired generals to top positions, wants them uh, to be in the military even more policy-focused. Um, so, yeah, the, watch this space. Check out the book, Warriors and Citizens. 
Um, well, I'll go next. And um, my my object this week is a short story, and it's not a newly published short story. It was published in Yiddish in 1946 in a newspaper in Buenos Aires uh, by a guy named Tzvi Kolitz. And um, it's called Yossi Rockover Talks to God. And, and the story is set in the Warsaw Ghetto in 1943. And it is, um, it is meant, it is described as the, the last testament of a Jew trapped in the ghetto, uh, Yossi Rockover. And I thought of this story today. Uh, actually, it was, it was mentioned to me by a friend because of what is happening in Aleppo as we speak, uh, in the last days, the Russians, Syrians, and Iranians have uh, aggressively stepped up their efforts to retake the city, devoting um, air power, artillery, and ground forces to an operation, uh, not allowing civilians to leave except across the line to the regime side where uh, there are numerous reports that women and children are being shot on site and men are being forcibly conscripted to fight their brethren in the Syrian army, uh, conscripted into the Syrian army to fight their brethren back on the other side of the line. Uh, and they have been doing this as ISIS retook Palma Palmyra, uh, which demonstrates the extent to which uh, the Russians are really in this to support Bashar al-Assad and destroy the opposition uh, and not to fight terrorism. Um, so I'm just going to read you a very, very brief excerpt of this um, last testament of uh, Yossi Rakover, I think because it illustrates the horror of such situations and the testimony that I think you can see if you look on social media flowing out of Aleppo these last few days, which is truly, truly horrifying uh, and uh, and you know, what can we hope for at this point? We can hope that um, that it's possible to arrange uh, enough of a ceasefire to allow civilians to leave and not to leave to regime-held areas, but to leave uh, elsewhere and survive. But um, in the story, he writes, a strange thing has happened to us. All our ideas and feelings have changed. Death, quick death that comes in an instant is to us a deliverer a liberator who breaks our chains. That is how it is. Such is the spiritual condition we have reached. Life is a calamity, death a liberator, man a plague, beast an ideal, day an abomination, night a comfort. Millions of people in the great wide world in love with the day, the sun, and the light neither know nor have the slightest intimation of the darkness and calamity the sun brings us. Um, I, I uh, will get this posted on our podcast page. I urge you all to take a look and uh, to stand as you can stand with Aleppo in these dark, dark days. Thanks, Tamara. Well, it's hard to follow that. Um, uh, my own, uh, you know, escapism to escape some of these news, including some of the political news in Europe and the United States over the past months, has been to delve into a project uh, on encryption history back into the Renaissance, into the uh, 15th century. And um, I think what I'd just like to say, because it, it's just so extraordinary, is, is what Google, and especially Google Books, have done. Uh, it is today possible on your phone, if you want to, on your iPad, to check a source uh, you know, from a publication in the 17th century that you're reading in full, whether the the letter that they quote from 15 or 6 
sent to some guy in Belgium from some guy in Germany in Latin, whether that's actually correctly quoted, and you can check the full text of the translation, and it's, you know, it takes you a few seconds. It is absolutely extraordinary. So I think a big shout-out to Google Books yeah. is my object lesson. Shout-out to Google Books, and no excuses, students, for not having your footnotes properly documented. <laughs> <laughs> Susan, what's your object? So my object lesson is... Um, uh, an extra special object lesson to me um and it is a rather cheesy um uh tlc uh untold stories of the er episode um which is this sort of like melodrama of uh real events that occurred um of which yours truly is the star of one um, I know, I know. I'll send your autographs <laughs> later. Oh this is very God. exciting. I saw um, it at like 3.30 in the morning. I know, I know. Susan, you're famous um, at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> exactly. I'm very famous. Um, so uh, 10 years ago today, um, when I was 21 years old, um, I, uh, I had a pulmonary embolism, which is a massive blood clot that comes into your heart. Um, and I had a massive heart attack. Um, and I am actually the uh, one of the longest uh, cases of CPR in medical history. I am in medical textbooks um, of someone having uh, the duration of CPR that I did um, without any brain damage. How long? 109 minutes, <gasps> um, including with fixed dilated pupils. It's I'd, very I'd just like to suggest that we don't actually know how much brain damage you suffered. You might have been the next Einstein. That's true. You know what? That is true. Because <laughs> we know that you are smoking hot smart. Mm-hmm, so just mm-hmm, imagine. Mm-hmm. You exactly. were sent to deliver us. Exactly. <laughs> and now you're um, or maybe it gave me superpowers, <laughs> one, one way or the other. Um, uh, yeah, so 109 minutes, um, that's 13,000 chest that's compressions. That's amazing. Um, and uh, my sort of, my object lesson is not just um, uh, this uh, somewhat silly uh, episode, um, which is a, a weird sort of a memento. What's um, the name of the show again? Uh, we'll post it online. We don't, nobody <laughs> needs to look into this. Nobody needs to look into this. Um, I also really object to the actress that played me I just on vanity grounds um, uh, but in sort of um, uh, the course of this very very long uh, uh, CPR um, uh, the attending physician um, was prevailed upon many times to stop um, not because the other doctors were lazy but because um, uh, the worst outcome is resuscitating someone that of course will not regain brain function and they thought that I had passed that point um, and my uh, physician whose name is Richard Sonner um, uh, just uh, uh, for some reason decided sort of not to give up on me that night and um, said, I'm in charge and I will take the um, the legal risks. They they did stuff that was sort of medically contraindicated. Um, I will take on the ethical risks um, and you will keep doing this until I tell you to stop. Um, and so for 109 minutes, damn it, um, he uh, sort of directed this, this pretty extraordinary thing. Um, uh, obviously, um, uh, I'm personally pretty grateful to him, um, and we have a, a wonderful relationship now. He was at my college graduation and my wedding, and is sort of um, uh, just generally like this, just this really wonderful man. Um, uh, but I sort of I, I think about that a lot. Um, I think about it today. I think about it as we um, sort of see um, really, really terrible images coming out of Aleppo, and just sort of um, feeling like the world is uh, crumbling at times. Um, that uh, for some of us, we get these moments of um, just extraordinary bravery and sort of the ability to have faith in people and um, professional integrity and ethics and, and sort of doing what matters. Um, and, you know, I, I got to go home, you know, 
two months later it was um, but you know now I look I'm, I look at my husband I look at our son um, I look at sort of all the amazing things I look at this podcast which I'm so incredibly grateful to be part of and and just am, am filled with gratitude and hope and um, and am really really inspired to, to also sort of take on those kinds of um, of risks and, and bravery in my own life so um, here is to uh, to Dr. Sonar, um, who I will send uh, the link to this podcast, um, uh, as well as just everybody who um, who stood by me that night and um, everyone that's happened over the past 10 years, man. Um, now we know why you're so fearless. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly. Because I, I, I literally can't die. Wow. <laughs> so... Well, happy you know. anniversary of Thank your, you. Of your, anniversary. your second I'm life. having this scotch as my, um, as my celebratory drink. I love it. <laughs> well, that's a great note to end on. Uh, and on that, that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to our show archives at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. And when you download the podcast from Stitcher or iTunes, your favorite podcatcher, you know what to do. Leave a five-star rating. Leave a great review. If you're just finding us because somebody gratefully posted a five-star review, uh, welcome. That, that means it's working. Putting the love out there brings new people into the fold. We really appreciate it. Uh, our audio engineer for the podcast is Quinta Jurassic. Our editor is Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Sexy Rex, Sexy Rexy and the Trump Tassets. I knew that was coming in there. <laughs> you just so had good. To do it. Sexy Rexy and the Putin riot. <laughs> no, of course, our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Uh, would she be in a band called Sexy Rexy? Yeah. Look, sexy if she Re- was gonna be in a band, it would be called Sexy. Rexy. Yeah, it'd be like something like that. Totally. Uh, thanks as always to Sophia. On behalf of my good friends Mark Hoffman Wittes and Susan Hennessy, and our special guest Thomas Ridd, who is uh, really great to be here with us in the studio. I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.